0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. Today we're very happy to welcome to the podcast Dr. Eve Trout-Powell, who is the Christopher H. Brown Distinguished Professor of History and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Dr. Trout-Powell, we've been waiting a long time to have you on the podcast. Uh, this is really exciting for us, so thank you for being here. It is my pleasure. Thank you very much for coming. So the topic of our discussion today Uh, will be the the many lives of slaves and slavery in late Ottoman Egypt and we will be drawing from Dr. Trout Powell's most recent book which is called Tell This in My Memory, Stories of Enslavement from Egypt, Sudan, and the Ottoman Empire. Um, We'll also at the end hopefully be able to discuss her upcoming project about the visual representations of slaves and slavery uh, in art and culture. So I wanted to start off our conversation, actually, by asking you a little bit about your experiences doing research in Cairo. Um, you begin the book with this kind of uh, vignette or discussion of what it was like to do research in Cairo and the relationships that you built with Sudanese refugee communities there, um, and how this kind of began or or perhaps deepened your engagement with the history of slaves and slavery in Ottoman Egypt. So I'm I'm just curious if you can tell us a little bit about how how you found the history of slavery in the ottoman empire either alive or kind of silenced in today's egypt
1: it is both alive and silenced in today's egypt and i think you put that question perfectly my experience with sudanese refugees especially sudanese refugees from south sudan particularly dinka or nuer refugees the most of my friends were dinka was how vulnerable they felt in Egyptian society. And that vulnerability came from their their unclear legal status, but also the fact that they kept hearing the insult, Abid, and that their sense that this was a word that was not funny, that was not a joke, that was meant specifically for them, as dark-skinned people in Egypt, and I, the first time I ever heard this word, um, I had been studying Arabic with a, with a Sudanese refugee who was also, had been a student, she is Dinka, and she had been a student at Cairo University in their business program. Her name is Yar. And her Arabic was fantastic. So she wanted to trade Arabic for English. And we became very good friends over years. Um, I've known her now for almost 20 years. And we met at Cairo University and we're going to get into a taxi and go someplace in Zamanik to have coffee. And she got into the taxi on one side, I got into the taxi on the other. And of course, in Cairo, everyone, if you're going in the same direction, you share the taxi. And we got into the taxi, and Yar is a very beautiful woman, and she's very dark-skinned and um, very dignified. And we got into the taxi, and the taxi driver turned to me and said, Hmm, smells like a slave in here. And remember, I was learning Arabic. I mean, I was in Casa at the time, right. the center of so Arabic taken aback So by I it, wasn't sure that. I had quite heard that but. correctly. And when I looked at her for clarification, the look in her face made it quite clear that what I heard sounded—it was the insult that I heard. She felt so. She was furious, and she let the cab driver know how she felt. We got out of the car. I mean, she really cursed him out. And he kept saying, it was a joke. It was a joke. And he had made many assumptions. He made an assumption that I was Egyptian. He made an assumption that this was funny. Um, But also, within all of that encounter was this history of why that word would have the impact on her that it did. And how I interpreted it. I mean, to me, he might as well have used the word have used the word nigger, and so um, so this began this exploration of what is that word and the power and the history of that word. And why is it the Sudanese refugees seem to carry the history of that word on their backs when they're seeking asylum? I mean,
0: thats it's really interesting, you know, to start with this question of the word abids right? And the word, uh, you know, that 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 clearly has a very specific meaning in today's Egypt, as I think you show in your book, it did in the late 19th century. Um, yes. And I think it's really, it's, it's useful to think about that word because you know, we often have, we have kind of two paradigms, it seems to me, for thinking about the history of slaves and slavery. And one is the kind of plantation slavery and the Atlantic slave trade, um, which is so prominent in the history of the Americas, right? And then I think historians of the Ottoman Empire have often, you know, particularly people who are focusing on the early modern period have often emphasized how different um, the kind of power relations, that were involved in the ownership, the buying and selling of slaves in the Ottoman Empire are from the Atlantic model. Um, but what your example kind of makes me think of is that something a little different is going on in late 19th century Egypt with the Sudanese, right? Um, that it's not it's not the plantation slavery model, but it's also not this kind of flexible, indentured servitude, concubinage, white slavery, you know, that's happening perhaps in Istanbul in, in the 16th century. So... I'm wondering if you could or just, the 19th century, or the 19th century. Right. Right. right so I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what are the modes of slave ownership that are that are going on in um, late Ottoman Egypt who's who's buying and selling slaves uh, where do they come from and you know what what's kind of the economy that's supporting this practice
1: one of the challenges for me has always been since I equate Abid with or did equate when I first heard it, with the N-word here, how to unpack those legacies and how to make sure that the differences in not only uh, slave relationships, which I will talk about, but also constructions of race, um, how different they are between Egypt in the 19th century or now um, and in the United States in the 19th century or now and also in the Ottoman Empire. Um, I think what it's important to think about is what are the legacies of slavery and wherever there is slavery there's a legacy and in this part of the world in the Nile Valley and in the Ottoman Empire of course it's a multiracial slavery so you also have Circassian slaves, you know, and concubines, as you were just talking about. But specifically in the late 19th century, um, it's domestic slavery for the most part. Um, the majority of those slaves come from Sudan. Some come from Ethiopia. There are There is an elite of domestic slaves or concubines who come from the Caucasus through the Ottoman Empire um, or through... Cairo to Istanbul but um and there's no longer the same level by the late 19th century of military slavery that we had seen before however there is more and more evidence that there was a different kind, there was some plantation slavery because of the Khedive Ismail's interest in cotton and when the US Civil War occurred Egyptian cotton really stood out, and there was a great deal of interest in hiring Confederate generals, um, also Union generals, but sometimes Confederate generals, because it was thought they might know how to really work. If not with Sudanese slaves, well, with fellahin or with farmers.
0: That's um, really fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea that there was kind of a, a cross-pollination, perhaps, of like cotton cultivation and racism <laughs> between <laughs> between the U.S. and, and right. Egypt in the 1860s or 70s. There's a
1: historian at Duke um, named Tavolia Glimp who's actually working on this. But I'm really looking forward to her book to seeing how exactly cotton and race and, and and how it crosses over.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, it also points out, I think, you know, part of the the sort of complexities that you were talking about, the you know, unpacking, and in that there are, you know, it's multiracial. Um, there are many different economies that are being, you know, in which slaves are being employed, people are coming through different routes, through different practices. Um, but what what I'm wondering is, you know, is there something pretty unique actually about Egypt in the Ottoman context because of the proximity to Sudan and also in the late 19th century because of the coming of the British um, that actually kind of changes or 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 uh, specifies you know the, the relationship that the Egyptian space has with slavery and slave owning.
1: So that's my first book. <laughs> um, um, that is that it, it, Egypt is so unique in this in this period. Um, what fascinated me, in my for the research for my first book was this strange historical trying a very unique kind of triangulation of events that happens to egypt in the late 19th century so egypt conquers the sudan under muhammad ali or mehmed ali in 1820 1821 by 1881 there is a rebellion going on in sudan the Mahdist rebellion but no one's really paying attention to that because there's another rebellion going on in Egypt, um, the Urabi Rebellion, and when that is defeated ultimately by the British who occupy Egypt in 1882, the rebellion in Sudan completely flares up um, and actually defeats British-led um, Egyptian forces in Khartoum. And so that Egypt goes within a four-year period from being a colonizer to being colonized. And it was always fascinating to me that in this period when you see, this is the Nahda, this is this is this fantastic cultural, you know, effloration in, 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 in Egypt, uh, people saying, brilliant people saying in the same satirical journals or the same plays, you know, how dare you colonize us And we want our colony back. And there's no... It's it's understood that this is right, that this makes sense politically and culturally, that to be a sovereign state in this period means to be a regional power. And to be a regional power means to be a colonizer. But much of that sense of unity... well domination and and then unity is based on a relationship of servitude and the assumption made by many that the sudan's role was to send sudanese or somehow the sudanese would get to egypt where they would help with the lower echelons of the egyptian infrastructure cleaning and um and and serving and just performing as servants and as as and as slaves and is there, is there a role for labor that's coming
0: from, from Sudan in the kind of massive infrastructure renewal projects of um, the late 19th century Egyptian state? Or is it really focused on the household
1: and sort of the, the kind of lower tiers of the labor that sustains daily life? That's what I would say. That, that's much more of it. That it's not so much a big part of the infrastructure. So for instance, in, um, I don't think slaves are a part of the Suez Canal. Building, right? Um, um, not that I have seen. Although it would be very interesting to find out if they were. Again, it will be fascinating to see m- more about the cotton industry. But as we get later into the century, um, I think it's more domestic,
0: right? So I guess I, I, I mean, and this is, um, you know, this this is maybe a question that falls into the same problem of anachronism that we were talking about before. But but you know, I have to ask, you know, is part of the reason that elite Egyptians can square their anti-colonialism vis-a-vis the British with their eagerness to become a colonial power vis-a-vis the Sudan, um, is race or is, is skin color or physio- you know, physiognomy uh, a factor here? It is, and this
1: is very complicated and not uncontroversial. Many people responded to my questions and my comments by saying that race is completely different in Egypt. Whenever an African-American brings up race, you know, the assumption is often made that we are bringing it up because of the United States and, you know, that race is an American thing. And it is an American thing, and that's not wrong. So some of the response to my work, perhaps in response, you know, to what was seen as my imposing um, racial connotations um, you know, in 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 a very different culture than the one in which in, to which I was born. So people would say, "Well, no, because it wasn't colonialism, because the Egyptians and the Sudanese are so similar, or because we were all Muslims, or or no, you know, so it, that's not the same as when Europeans come and really impose, you know, an an attempted civilizing mission and all of that." My answer to that is that. Right, it's not the same, but there were stereotypes and biases and assumptions made about Sudanese that really were based on color that you can see in the in the literature of the time. It's, it's said so in the satirical journals of the time, and even <clears throat> later, I mean, going from Abu Nadar Zar'a from um, Yaqub Sanua in the 1870s all the way to El Kashkul in the 1930s, you really do see sort of stereotyped depictions of Sudanese people, Nubians also, that are not necessarily descended only from British understandings of race. They also come from Ottoman understandings of race and they also come and this is where I think the real key is they come from Sudanese slave traders understanding of race because it is the Sudanese slave traders who are really the rough ethnographers of the Sudan when they decide where they can raid and where they cannot based on who is non-monotheistic who seems to be part of the Dinka the Nuer, the Azand, etc. who is enslavable. So I really think a lot of it comes from the the lexicon, the racial lexicon that was developed by the slave traders.
0: Right. So this is a really important contribution, right? Which is that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a derivative of a European or an American racism in order for there to be what you're, I think, rightly calling a, a racial lexicon or a racist lexicon right. um, to be functioning in, in Egypt, right. especially given... Mm-hmm you know, the presence of economies in which certain in which people from certain regions were being brought, you know, coerced to do certain kinds of work. Right. Right. So, I, you know, I think that that's really a, a you know, kind of useful note when we're thinking about the complexity of um, studying slavery in a, in a global context, but also as a very local phenomenon that's, yep. you know, transformed by, by local factors.
1: May I say one thing? This is also, this is a huge part of Sudanese history. I mean, this very issue of racial to racist and, and, and when do you make these kinds of leaps of, of bias is so much a part of 20th century Sudanese history. And it is a very powerful part of why we have two Sudans to this day. Can you say
0: more about that? What, is the, what are the politics of um, calling something racist versus racial in, in the context of Sudanese history?
1: So, and I've always been very, I'm glad we're doing this now, because I've always been a little hesitant to go right to racist. Um, and part of that is because of the scar tissue I bear from so many arguments about, you know, well, you know, what is the difference? I think the legacy of slavery in Sudan, especially in northern Sudan, and who and how difficult it has been to integrate from the south and sort of the, the, the types of, of structured exclusion that happened in the north. Um, and it, wasn't, it was also helped by the British when the British took over the government of Sudan in 1899, 1898, 1899. But it has left scars of mutual... Hate, distrust and suspicion that 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 have really not been there's no there is not to my knowledge a real national debate and I have Sudanese students who come into my classes and go back to their grandparents and say exactly what was the relationship of that woman who lived in our house. Who had was not married, and you know, you say she was, you know, our little sister or our cousin. What exactly was the relationship, you know? And really beginning to look at, you know, when their grandparents say, "Well, she was our servant." And
0: I mean, you know, I, I think one of the powerful things about the book and also about your work generally is that it reminds us that these histories are never, you know, that they're still they're still very much with Egypt and with Sudan in the right. same way, you know, or. To a similar degree, perhaps as right. they are with us, you know, here in the United States, um, and I think I think that that's that's really fascinating. I'm wondering, you know, to sort of return to this to this question of um, the living memory, right? You you discuss this uh, the kind of movement or memory of this woman, um, Sister Josephine Bachita, in Cairo, right? And and she seems to be someone who who kind of bridges the period before, you know, she's born in 1869 mm-hmm. in Sudan. Mm-hmm.
1: So she doesn't really go to Egypt. She goes to Italy. Okay. but um, she comes to Egypt through her fame. She comes to Egypt through the Catholic Church. And that's the interesting thing. I, I mean, I think she might have been in Cairo on her way. Okay. To, so she is sold, when she is a little girl, she is sold to the Italian consul of Sudan who's uh, in Khartoum, and I found his picture in this archive, so he'll be part of the next book. Um, um, she is sold, and she goes to Italy, and her presence as a slave becomes a real problem for the Catholic Church, and she is very drawn to this small church in this small village near Venice where she is working, and she ends up, um, she's supposed to take care of the daughter of her owner, and she ends up, she, so she has to go to catechism, Brings, brings the daughter to catechism class where she falls in love with images of Jesus and with and the priest is everyone's shocked at the, this presence of this black woman in in Italy in the 1880s um, but she eventually becomes a nun and um, and her presence in Italy I mean she is the whole reason why I wrote this second book but what's kind of interesting about Bajita is that She's not fluent in Italian. Um, She's clearly very charismatic to those around her, but we don't really have too many of her words. But as a symbol, she soars, and as a symbol, she resonates. And how she gets back to Egypt is through the Catholic churches. And there are a lot of Catholic churches in Egypt. And um, you will see the symbol that a church is a sanctuary for Sudanese refugees is a picture of... Josephine Bajita on the door. And um, so there is a Bajita Center in um, the Sacred Heart. Um um, cathedral in Abassia and in Zemalek, um and St. Joseph's there is a picture of and there is a Bechita Center. Mm. These are sites for the welcome of refugees um, and many of the refugees with whom I spoke um, and Bechita's story is very well known. She told it to a fellow nun and um, it's been reprinted in all kinds of different languages and after her canonization in 2000, I mean she is everywhere and there's a movie Movie about her too, which is great. We will we will
0: put the link up on our it's bibliography so film. listeners can watch it. Yeah. So maybe I mean so what then? What is what was the role of of the Catholic Church and sort of the Catholic missionary apparatus um, in Sudan and perhaps in Egypt also? That you know the Italian consul is happy enough to buy a slave um, in eighteen. 18- Eighty something in right, Sudan, right. Um, but then she becomes a problem for the church when she, when she's taken back to Italy. Is that because slavery has yes. become a problem for the church? It, it's
1: because well, it's the church in in Italy is able to seize on this moment. The church has just lost everything. The Vatican has been almost wiped out by the Risorgimento in Italy, and so much of what had been Vatican territory is taken away. And that's why we have a tiny little city now. Um, but the 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 Many authorities in the church, all the way up to the Pope, see her presence in Italy as a slave to show what has gone wrong with Italian society since mm. since the loss of power. And so the church really seizes on this. Um, so it's a very important part. Abolition becomes a big political tool for the church. But I think it's important to say that even before that, I believe the first cathedral was built in Sudan in 1843. So Catholic missionaries have been there since almost the beginning. Um I guess, a generation after the beginning. And then there was one particular priest, um, um, Daniele Camboni, who sets up a huge um, compound, to draw slaves and attract slaves to come. He trains slaves, and he's interested in creating a dictionary. I mean, there's a real interest in these languages right. for the missionaries. Right, and a
0: sort of, um, I mean, is, is this out of a desire to, to liberate slaves? Yes. And yes. so this also then combines with a kind of philological interest and a kind of, um, you know, even ethnographic interest in a way. That's
1: right. But he's so interesting because he actually respects the intelligence of the slaves who come to him. And one of his famous um, um, protégés is Father Daniel soror Deng who was Dinka, who escaped from his enslavement into Camboni's compound and ends up fluent in Italian and French and Arabic and trains in Rome and ends up as a teacher in Cairo um, and, and dies in Helwan. Um So um, it's the Catholic Church is deeply deeply involved and I think
0: you know this this gets at at sort of the question that we started this episode with which is sort of what are the many lives of slaves and slavery in Ottoman Egypt and that you know through the church it sounds like both women and men in a way you know specific individuals were able to find um, a kind of uh, a kind of different path out of their enslavement and out out of the Sudan so that's that's really interesting we're going to take a quick break uh, you're here listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson, talking with Dr. Eve Trout Powell about the many lives of slaves and slavery in Ottoman Egypt, and we'll be we'll be right back.
2: Hi, this is Chris Grayton, your frequent host and producer here on Ottoman History Podcast. I just wanted to drop in and say, for those who are new to the program, that we're happy to have you. And if you enjoy this episode, we have a lot of other great episodes that tie in with today's conversation. I especially recommend episode number 257 with Michael Ferguson about the African diaspora in late Ottoman Izmir, as well as episode number 248 with Liat Kozma, about the lives of marginalized women, including slaves, in 19th century Egypt, and our very popular interview with Noor Sobers Khan, episode 181, concerning slavery and manumission in early modern Istanbul. These are just some of the episodes, old and new, dealing with the subject of slavery available on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. To catch up on those conversations, check out the episode tab at the top of our page, In addition, make sure you don't miss out on our latest installments by subscribing on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. And while you're at it, leave us a kind rating. Ottoman History Podcast is a non-commercial website supported by the energy and resources of our dedicated recording team and contributors, and there's no better way to support the program and its mission than to circulate and share our content. Now back to Susie Ferguson's interview with Eve Trout-Powell about slavery and slave narratives in Egypt. Thanks for tuning in.
0: So welcome back. You're listening to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson, here today with Professor Eve Trout-Powell of the University of Pennsylvania, discussing her you know really excellent work on um, the many lives of slaves and slavery in late Ottoman Egypt. So I wanted to turn in the sort of second half of our episode to this question of representation, right? And so that it's not just that there were many kinds of slave lives and lives lived by people who were enslaved or formerly enslaved, uh, in the late 19th century, um, but also that there are many different kinds of representations of slaves and slavery that are circulating um, in Egypt, and the Ottoman Empire, and, you know, as we discussed briefly, in Italy and in Europe. Um, so I wanted to ask you just broadly, you know, what kinds of representations or narratives about slaves and slavery do you see in cultural production in Ottoman
1: Egypt? One of the lessons I, I had to learn when I was first, well, I was pretty much far I was pretty far along on this project about Bahita as a narrative of slavery, um, was that it was thin, it was hard, it was, and I didn't want to write a hagiography. and, and, And she did not write very much. And it occurred to me that I had to find, that the people who would, because this was the Nahda, because this was such a period where people were writing like crazy, that maybe... In the depictions, or in the in in the works of famous nationalists, um, there would be some mention of their childhoods, and um, and there was, and I think Hoda Sharawi is one of the most interesting ones, right?
0: Who's one of the kind of, you know, most well-known figures, or I think self-styled
1: pioneers of the uh, Egyptian feminist movement. That's right, and and. And she so, what I try to do in in tale, tell this in my memory is to pair the narratives of slaves with the narratives of slave owners. And the slave owners usually tended to be very prominent people who, at some point later in their lives or in late middle age, thought, "I will write the story of my life because the story of my life is the story of my nation in many ways and so And she is fascinating about this because she you know, these were memoirs that she dictated to her secretary, um, it, and I believe she dictated them in French. Mm. And then, but we there is a two-volume in Arabic um, um, version of Mudakirati or My Memoirs, um, in which she really discusses the presence of slaves in her household, in the gardens, doing the work, sort of the rhythm that they set up in daily life. Um, And there are two figures in particular who stand out in her narrative, which is her mother, of course, um, and Saeed Aga, who is the eunuch who raised um, Hoda and her brother. And after the death of their father, Muhammad Sultan Pasha, You know, he has a lot of power. There's no adult man in the household. And so he has a lot of power. And one of the more interesting things that she says is how, you know, he would spank them when they did the wrong thing and he would be very harsh with them. And of course, there is the famous scene where he won't let her learn how to read in Arabic. While her brother gets the opportunity. That's right. And so he is one of the determiners of her gender and the limits of her gender. And here he is, a eunuch, and and she's trying to figure out the limits of his power. Right. And it's her mother who is the translator here. It is her mother who says, you know, I understand what he's gone through. And there's a certain sympathy between Iqbal, her mom, and Said, Said Arab, which I interpret especially in the way that Hoda tries to relate the journey of her mother from the Caucasus to Egypt, which is so similar to the, the journeys often forced of young Circassian women who, by the time they get to Egypt, they are able to land in these, the households of the very, very rich through concubinage. Right. She, the Ma Iqbal, was not, was not a wife. And so um, there is a subtle, very subtle sort of presentation of her mom as having been someone who was a slave. Right. And that these two kinds, what we we'd
0: think of as two very, in some ways, very different kinds of, slave pathways, right, Right. one from the Sudan and one from the Caucasus, one, someone who is light skinned, someone who is taken into an elite household and and someone else who, you know, ends up working in an elite household, but might not have ended up in that position um, that they kind of exist side by
1: side and and understand each other in a way. They understand each other because they both felt very, or at least in Hoda Sharawi's presentation, very, very grateful to the patriarchs helping them. So Saeed Aga gets an education, and he is an elite guy. You right. know, he is, you know, to be a Sudanese eunuch in one of these households is to not be without power. Right. And, um, and he is very, very loyal, as she says of many of the other slaves, to the traditions, to, to the uniforms, to the status that this conveys on, on someone like that. But it's interesting because she begins to see him as anachronistic. And she has a very interesting scene in the memoirs where she talks about going to one of the new department stores downtown and she finally talks her mom into going and her mother. You know, people shopped at home. The right. goods it came wasn't, to
0: you. And it wasn't, you know, the department store itself was a new... Um, you know, this was a new phenomenon. That's
1: right. And they are both heavily veiled and, you know, and, and, and one of the sh- sh- one of the shop girls actually looks at them like, where are you from? And then Aga starts barking out orders to everybody, don't talk to them. And she's so embarrassed because she looks so unmodern. Mm. And it's part of, of a way of
0: life that, you know, at least by the time when she's narrating her memoirs, she feels to have past or that 's right, you know been associated with a past that 's if not
1: repudiated, certainly gone, right. although she is so complicated because in later represent, representations of her, and as Beth Baron has shown, you know she really tries to seize her image, but those caricaturing her, particularly in el kashkul there 's always side next to her, mm. um, sort of kind of either maybe that 's the way it was, and that that could be the case but also to me to my now 21st century eyes sort of says you never escaped what seemed like an anachronism even then he was still a part of mm. your household um and of course she has in my, in t- tell this in my memory a very interesting counterpart um Halide adib adivar who right. in- will
0: be well known to many of our um you know listeners who who work on turkey or are interested in the history of turkey as one of the major also very complicated um, Turkish feminist figures of That's the right. early 20th century.
1: I wonder if they met because, because Hoda Sharawi was fluent in Turkish and often went um, to Istanbul. Absolutely. And was very, very impressive to Atatürk. Yeah. Um, I actually found letters in the Sharawi uh,
0: papers at, at uh, AUC in Cairo that were written in Ottoman Turkish from like the 30s. I mean, so she was clearly, I, I think it's a very strong possibility actually. Yeah. Yeah. He was clearly connected, you know, as many of these Egyptian elites um, and elites from other Arab provinces or former provinces
1: were to the elite life in Istanbul. That's right. And they went to Istanbul all the time. Um, but I think Haliday Adib Adivar, especially in her memoirs, um, which were written in English. Columbia. She was teaching at Columbia, right. and um, um, and I wonder where she lived. And I always want to know like, what her experience with Harlem was like. I and wish she would narrated that. Piece. I really yeah, do. Absolutely. But I find her just intriguing because she's really honest about the relationship of slaves to her family, and um, and the connection. She's much more open about. Slavery and marriage, um, and how mixed up it could be uh, for women of her generation or a little older than her generation. She's very... in that in
0: that marriage was um, that she understood marriage as sort of being a, a relationship
1: not so far off from slavery. Or this was this was a big part of, right. of, of what she said and what Hoda Shad said also. Right. But where Halle is a little different is that she's more honest about. Her sense of power and her sense of privilege, and like she really wants. She talks about being scared of new slaves, and then these new slaves come to her and her sister, and they're terrified. They're going to be eaten right. by these Ottomans because they've both heard stories from That's both right. sides about right. the other. That's yeah. right, and 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 she thinks about manumission. We don't see manumission in the in the words of Hoda Shah mm. And. Halide is 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 very complicated about it. She sees herself more on the cusp of historical things, mm-hmm. I think, in a differently self-aware way than Hoda Shahravi. But she knows that she would not be who she is had it not been for slaves.
0: So it seems like, I mean, there's one kind of process of reading, which is about going to the, the narratives of the Ottoman or the Egyptian elites, right, including people like Hoda Shahravi and Halide Adib, and also you mentioned Ali Mubarak, Um, And sort of finding the traces that are there um, either, you know, kind of explicitly or kind of, you know, despite themselves, because this is part of what life involved about slave owning and and slave ownership. But then there's another kind of text um, that you work with, which are which are actually the the narratives of slaves themselves that are left to us. Right. Right, And you mentioned that, you know. The story of Bahita is difficult because she didn't write a lot. But then there are other figures like um, Salim Charles Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, who you mentioned, who, who actually did get a chance to write their own narratives. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can just tell us about, you know, what, how, how, what is it like to read those sources, and and how can you, you know, what does it tell us when they're compared with these narratives of the elites, uh, the elite Egyptian men and women?
1: One of the first discoveries I had to realize is I was not going to be able to find I I have not yet been able to find a narrative of a slave written in Arabic Um, and that if it is a narrative then it is the kind of urgent I'm about to be beaten narrative that Ehu Toledano found in the middle 19th century in the police records um, um, in Dar and that's the the story of Shamsugu the slave right. woman who, who appealed to try to get her baby back after her baby was stolen like those and I didn't I wanted a narrative I didn't want just urgent moments I right. was looking for narratives um, but you don't find those or I have not found those, and I hope someone will find some. That's right, um, one of our researchers out there that's the, right. on the airwaves. That's right, <laughs> just because I'm limited doesn't mean. But that, because when people were able to find or pull together all of the different links that it, you need in order to be able to publish a narrative, especially in the 19th century or the early 20th century, um, it wasn't going to happen except outside of the Middle East. And right. so, Salim C. Wilson, who does claim to be fluent in Arabic, um, but he is doing his publication in England, um, where he, he gets there after the Mahdia also, and he had been enslaved during the Mahdist period. And he in is- In Sudan. D- in Sudan, and he is Dinka also, and lives out most of his adult life in England, performing his enslavement. And performing it for abolitionist societies, um and struggling also with this sort of white patriarchal condescension he's facing in unsurprisingly nineteenth century right. Britain. Right. Where although abolition was,
0: you know, certainly talked about, there was still, you know, there was still there was still resistance, presumably to this. Well, there idea. was still racism. yeah, and,
1: and you know,
0: fierce yeah. Racism. So you have a narrative then that's kind of evoked in a very specific context as he he becomes kind of um like a symbol or a spokesperson for a, a movement of 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 people who are, you know, may not have his same agenda at heart in a way.
1: They have his agenda, but they don't have him. They want to free slaves, but they still haven't wrapped themselves around the idea that a black man can become so fluent in English from his background. And what I've always wondered about him was that he is in England at a time when you are now having black intellectuals from the Caribbean and from Africa begin to really circulate in London. And he's not in London. He's way up north in Scunthorpe. But he, he, you know, what is his, and he missed Sudanese people, and he says this, and much of his work is trying to sort of recreate for himself um, sort of the, the, the traditions of his tribe, which um, famous anthropologists now use him you know, um, um, for some of what they're looking for. That's really fascinating.
0: Yeah. So he becomes kind of um, like, an, like an ethnographer of his own That's people right. in a way, which I think, you know, given what we, how we think of the ethnographic gaze and the kind of distance that it requires, you know, this shows you in a way how distant he must have had to become right. to, to be able to write in a kind of objective, scholarly way about the right. sort of quote-unquote traditions right. of, his own life that he had
1: left when he was a little boy so that there was this trouble of believing him. This is also the period of course, of these exhibitions and these world fairs and just all kinds of rampant misrepresentation of Africans period. Um, So he's fighting against that too, but he's also collaborating with that because that's the job he can find. Um, Father Daniel Sodor Deng is Different because he truly was fluent in all of these different languages, and was was from what I gather from the memoirs I found of his in Rome, he really had mastered Italian, and so the arc the Camboni archive really has honored him in many ways, and. His traces can be found in Italy and also in Egypt. And he was hired as a teacher of languages and um, in some of these missionary schools where some Egyptian elite families really didn't want someone who looked like a slave to them to teach their, um, their children.
0: Right. I think that brings us back in a really nice way, actually, to what we started with: was this question of abids, right, mm-hmm. and what this means now in mm-hmm. in in Egypt and the way in which it seems to be related to, you know, an issue about color, yeah, um, in a way that's, you know, perhaps uncomfortable for us because we think, oh, that's the American right. gaze, but it actually right. seems that, you know, there there was. You know, there was a question about physical appearance right. that was also operating, um, right. and so I wanted to to sort of take this opportunity to to ask, you know, about your new project, which is about the visual representation um, of slaves and slavery, right? And so, if if that maybe is a way of getting at this question of, you know, what what was the politics of racism or racial the patterns of racial thinking that were operating uh,
1: in the 19th century in Egypt and elsewhere. So here I'm doing what I had to do in the last book in terms of putting things into dialogue because um, famous Orientalist painters like Jean-Léon Jérôme were fascinated by skin color, fascinated by color, but were deeply invested in realism but absolutely in love with the richest, deepest color. So it always struck me as very meaningful when you see in the middle of a Jérôme painting a eunuch of such beautiful skin um, and how that skin is used to offset other kinds of color in representations of the harem in particular. And it's the harem representation I'm mostly interested in in terms of the paintings. Um much of this, though, has to be put into dialogue. What does that mean in a French 19th century sort of context? What does it mean in an Ottoman context? Right. Because we have Ottoman painters as well, Osman Hamdi Bey, for instance, um, who are also painting harabs in very different ways, who are working with painters like Jérôme. Um, and then we have photographers like um Abdallah Frère, um, sometimes Armenian um, photographers, sometimes not, who are beginning to help Jérôme and other painters. They do. They take the photographs of, say, places in Bursa, and then he works from that, hmm. and then he puts in the slaves, say, in some of the harem paintings or the bath paintings. But there were Ottoman artists who were buying Jérôme, and they were bringing these, or, or Ottoman Families, patrons, who were bringing this in. And so um, this is a very interesting art historian, Mary Roberts, who does a very interesting exploration of what kind of dialogue is going on here from elite Ottoman patrons and these kinds of paintings. Orientalist painters in Europe and elsewhere. But Mm -hmm. especially about the harem, about Mm -hmm. what Ottoman interior life is like. And they're buying these paintings and putting them in these harems. I'm fascinated by that. I'm also fascinated by something that I found in the um, Bibliothèque Nationale Française. Um, it's actually on their website. It's a book of photographs that were commissioned by um, one of Napoleon's cousins, who who was a huge patron of photography. Um, and this is in the late 1880s. Um, and the photographer's name is Vaucion, and And these are photographs that take place right before... The Mahdi took over Khartoum, and these are people you read about all the time, in you know the very. There's a lot of literature about you know the Mahdi and what happened to the British and what happened to the Egyptians, and these photographs are staged in these very interesting ways, but you see these linkages, um, and the photographer, God bless him, left. Captions mm. that. So I'm hoping, you know, in this one of these chapters, to be able to actually really show this person was this person's slave, and this and why the photo was taken in the in way, the way it that was. it's taken. Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, that sounds. I think the idea of of bringing photography and painting together to sort of ask these questions about how visual representation is working um, in between Egypt, the Ottoman Empire and Europe is really fascinating. And perhaps we can have you back uh, after the next project is is finished. We actually have a series um, on the Ottoman history podcast called the visual past, which does some of this work of trying to think about, um, you know, what, what is the role of, of, visual sources and visual materials, uh, in thinking about this period. So we hope that we can, uh, we can, we can have you back to discuss this further. That is more incentive to write this book than ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent, excellent. <laughs> we look forward to it. And um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This has been a really interesting conversation uh, for me and hopefully for many of our listeners.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And for those of our listeners who want to find out more about this episode, uh, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Dr. Trout Powell's book, Tell This in My Memory, Stories of Enslavement from Egypt, Sudan, and the Ottoman Empire, which was published by Stanford in 2012. Um, You should also stay tuned for upcoming work about visual representation on the the series that I mentioned on the visual past. And we'll post a bibliography for this episode on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we invite all of our listeners to leave comments and questions um, and perhaps ideas for future episodes. So uh, that's all for this episode. And until next time, take care.